them for their stuff. So, um, thanks for showing up today. I know you got a lot going on this season, and we're glad that we are a part of it. Hopefully, it's adding to your uh, Christmas experience, and hopefully, I didn't ruin Christmas too much uh, last week uh, for many of you. Um, and just a little bit about that, you know, last week was all about disclaimers uh, with both uh, the story and It's a Wonderful Life and just acknowledging it was a movie in 1946 that definitely showcased sensibilities from 1946. Still a great movie, but we acknowledge uh, that there are some things that we don't agree with. And then uh, took a look at the Christmas story itself, uh, reflected in Matthew and Luke. And, you know, I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor, went to church literally every Sunday that I wasn't sick my whole life. And both of my grandpas uh, were pastors, so my parents both went to church their whole life. And I didn't really know how much of a bubble, you know, I was being raised in until long after. You know, I was, I was an adult and started to hear other people's perspectives about the Christmas story. And I just assumed because everybody in my world was saying, well, it's just a straight-up fact. This is exactly how it happened. And then I heard, started to hear from other perspectives uh, that uh, challenged that. And some of those challenges were the things that I brought you uh, last week, which were, <laughs> some of them, deeply unsettling. And my whole point with all that was is that it's not just It's a Wonderful Life that there are disclaimers with. It's not just the, the birth story narratives of Jesus, but our own lives. We have our own share of disclaimers in our lives. And that's a part of it. And the Christmas story enters into that. There's a tension all the time between uh, what God is doing, our frailty, our fleshiness versus our spiritualness, all that stuff. And, uh, you know, today we're going to give you a hopeful day. So I don't think I'm going to ruin anybody's Christmas today, uh, hopefully. Um, but we're going we're gonna to focus in and do what I think we're supposed to do with the stories anyway. Um, if you are bent on bringing a scientific head uh, to the birth narratives in Matthew and Luke uh, and try to figure out once and for all, you know, what is the ratio of Spirit of God versus human flesh in Jesus and define that, you know, for the rest of your life, um, you're going to be really frustrated and you're going to miss the whole point of everything uh, because that's not what we're supposed to do with the story. I think it's good for you to think about these things. They're a part of your your paradigm, your theological schema, that you make sense with the world. But the reality is that the more you go through life, you're going to change your thinking about things, and that's okay. So what does Luke and what do Matthew want us to do with the story? They want us to relish in it. And in good Eastern fashion, uh, because Judaism is an Eastern religion, we're just going to kind of sink into it a little bit today. And we're going to use a weird word uh, to get there uh, that you've heard me talk about today. And, uh, and that word is suckfests. So, <laughs> now, I like this word a lot. And this word suck, uh, it kind of started to come into popular fashion, I think, in the 1980s. Uh, so I was in middle and high school in the 80s, and uh, that became a very popular, very common word. And it's still with us today. Uh, and I think it's a great word for two reasons. One, it's a very descriptive word which is completely accurate of sucky things that happen in life. 
Because when you go through sucky situations, it sucks the life out of you. Am I right? It sucks the joy out of the moment. It sucks your happiness. It sucks your future. It sucks your energy level. It sucks, right? So, so that is a real definitive uh, statement. And the other reason why I wanted to go with Suckfest is because it's kind of hard to be too serious when you wor use words like Suckfest. <laughs> it just kind of lightens it up a little bit. And I think that's actually an important part of dealing with our, with our suckiness, <laughs> is just being able to add some levity along the way. So if I'm offending you with the word Suckfest, sorry about that. Um, it's too late now. It's <laughs> there's more to come. And so I want to just first take a look at George's Suckfest. Now, I don't want to be a spoiler here for the movie, for those of you who haven't seen it. Hopefully, you'll see it. But this is a list of the whole Suckfest, and, and George's Suckfest is the premise of the movie, right? It starts off, he's considering taking his own life at, the, at a bridge in the dead of winter uh, because he's overwhelmed with the Suckfest stories of his life, which include he lost hearing in one ear as a boy and saving his uh, brother from drowning. Uh, not too long after he healed up from that, he was assaulted by an adult who also happened to be his boss, Mr. Gower, who in his dr drunken grief uh, slapped him upside the ear because he didn't know that George was actually saving his career. Uh, he disappointed his dad. This one, uh, I think, is somewhat overlooked. Um, this is kind of early in the story. Uh, Harry's getting ready to go to the prom, and George and his dad are having this conversation, and and George's dad, you know, says to him, hey, George, I was thinking that maybe you could take over the family business, building and loan, because it's doing a really good thing uh, here in Bedford Falls. And unfortunately, uh, George reacts and talks about not wanting to be cooped up in a crammed little office and, you know, doing that for the rest of his life, kind of demeaned it. And then he caught himself and, you know, gave his dad a compliment. But you could see that his dad was disappointed that, when George went off to do the world, which his dad was fine uh, that that was going to happen, it meant that the building and loan would probably close. And you can feel this. And what makes it worse is that very night his dad had a stroke that led to his death, uh, which is awful, which then also meant, as the story moved on, uh, that George was going to take over the family business, whether he liked it or not. He was kind of stuck with it. Meanwhile, his brother Harry uh, got his break. He got to go to college. He was a football star. Uh, went into uh, served in World War II and became a war hero. At one point, George uh, gets married, and they've got a huge wad of cash that they're going to blow on this fantastic honeymoon trip. All this money George has been saving up to go to college and travel the world, they're going to blow it on their honeymoon. And then they look in the rearview mirror, right? Remember what's happening? It's sometime in uh, 1929, and somewhere around you know, late October, and the stock market has crashed and there's a run on the bank, including the building alone. And so they go to try to talk sense. What does Mary do? She lifts up the honeymoon cash and saves the bank for another day. It's remarkable, but that also meant that he was now broke. He had a dollar from all that money. Uh, later on, we learn from Mr. Potter that there's a rumor floating around that maybe he and Violet are a little bit too close, and George can't believe it. It's the first time he's heard of it, apparently. But he's got to deal with this. Somehow Mr. Potter heard about Violet and whether or not there's something inappropriate going on. At one point, this might not seem like a bad thing, but it was a bad thing, is Mr. Potter offered George a job. He wanted to lure George away from the building alone, which was his competition, and he offered him a pretty strong salary. He offered him $20,000 a year, I think, for five years. 
Now, we'd look at that and say, I could do better than an out in Walmart <laughs> right here in Napa. But $20,000 back in that day and age was not $20,000 in our currency. If you did, to do the math on this, it would be close to a half a million dollars a year is what he was being offered. This was an absolute fortune. And George is blown away. He's imagining what that could buy, what that could do for his family. And then he realizes what's really it happen, happening. Uh, this is Potter trying to weave his web and bring him in with the lure of greed. Uh, what uh, really pushed the envelope to make uh, George so sick in this movie uh, was that there was a deposit that was lost. And if you know the movie well, you know that it was not called a $130,000 deposit. It was an $8,000 year-end deposit. Uh, and Uncle Billy uh, lost the deposit uh, somewhere. Uh, well, we know what happened to it. He, he misplaced it and ended up in Potter's hands. Well, $8,000 in that day and age equates to $130,000 a day. That's why it's really serious. That's why George uh, may be going to jail, which there was an arrest warrant issued by Mr. Potter. Um, his daughter Zuzu got sick because she went out in the cold without a jacket. Uh, he, George finds out this terrible day when all this stuff is crashing down that even his son is a little bit disappointed in him, or at least that's the way George takes it. Remember this scene? George comes in, he's freaking out, and his little boy lets, lets uh, dad know that the neighbor just got a new car. Meanwhile, George is driving this piece of junk model, whatever, uh, that, uh, that he would love to just get rid of. So he feels like a loser. His house is still a, a work in, in process. Uh, it was this dilapidated shack that they slowly uh, fixed up. Uh, in his stress, in his reaction, he blew up at Mary and the kids. Uh, he ended up finding himself trying to get drunk at a bar and was punched by the husband of the teacher that George chewed out about Zuzu being sick. By the way, a little fun fact. Um, well, it's not that fun, but in the scene... <laughs> Uh, where George is at the bar, and he's praying the prayer. Uh, God, you know I'm not a praying man, but I need help, kind of a thing. And he's, pr and he's crying. Um, if you go back and read the story of you know, what's happening behind the scenes, he's not acting. Uh, those are real tears. And what is not known so much uh, about Jimmy Stewart is that he suffered from PTSD before they knew to call it PTSD. That he served in World War II, and he was broken by it. And uh, this was a difficult movie and a difficult scene, but the tears came very easily for him because he was feeling personally uh, in his, in his uh, depression and desperation, uh, real agony. Uh, so he resonated a lot with the character that he was playing. So he prays for an angel, and what does he get stuck with? He gets stuck with Clarence, AS2, angel, second class, <laughs> who's kind of a bumbler, doesn't even have his wings yet, and uh, George's response is, well, that's about the kind of angel I, I would get, I would expect to get. So uh, George's life, you know, is marked by one suck-fest moment after another, uh, and it's a bummer. And if we do what I think we're supposed to do with the Christmas story, um, Mary's experience in her life was riddled with lots of suck-fest too. Uh, so... You know, where the previous screen, the question was, is this really a wonderful life, given all the suck fest? Well, Mary's, I'm wondering, is she really having a Merry Christmas here? Because, as I told you last Sunday, um, you know, if we just look at it face value, uh, she was voluntold about the pregnancy. It wasn't Gabriel coming and say, hey, let's sit down and have a, have a conversation over coffee, and what do you think about this proposal from God? It was, hey, Mary, you're going to be overcome by an angel of God, and you're going to become pregnant. Congratulations. 
Well, think about what that was uh, for Mary's experience when she went back to eventually have to tell her family. How do you think that went over? And how do you think it would have gone over when Mary explained, oh, no, 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 uh, it's okay because this was a God thing that happened. Really, a really big God thing just happened. Do you think anybody's going to buy that stuff? No way. No way. But she keeps it up. They're going to be pushing her. They're going to be pressuring her, wondering who the father is because they're going to want to seek justice uh, for that in an era when women were property. How are we going to get compensated for what happened to you because now you're less than? And if it was Joseph, that would have been scandalous even though they were technically married. This was a horror show for her. And not just because of the family, but as the word got out of the community, it's going to be difficult there as well. Uh, the rabbinical response, you know, they, the rabbis in that day were hyper-legalistic, hyper uh, which means that they were probably not going to show much grace. This whole idea of God impregnating a woman, uh, is that is so far uh, from the Jewish tradition that for any rabbi worth their salt in that day, they'd be like, uh, there's no way. God forbade this in the book of Genesis. Look it up, Mary. Don't try to come to us with this yarn about God, you know, and an angel coming upon you. Just fess up what really happened. She's having no support here. Joseph, he's probably the least responsive until he has his own aha moment because an angel went to him. Joseph's family, same thing. This was, this was, a, <laughs> this was a suck fest for Mary for a long time and probably long after Jesus' birth. Still a suck fest. People are talking about this thing. The people who remembered what was going on, they're going to remember this about Jesus, and they're not going to let it go because people don't let stuff go like this, right? Well, I've, you know, we have two kids, so I've been through two pregnancies. I know what it's like to be pregnant. <laughs> Women are shooting daggers out of their eyes right now. Um, I can just imagine uh, that uh, women who go through a pregnancy experience some physical changes. Is that safe to say? I think that's very safe to say. And not only is it physical changes, it's serious emotional changes. As a husband of a wife who's had two kids, I can tell you, at least from my experience, I've seen emotional changes. And my advice, the advice that was given to me, which I've passed on to every, you know, dad-to-be is just breathe deep. Breathe deep. <laughs> Don't say anything stupid. <laughs> Give her plenty of room because her hormones are all over the place, uh, naturally, because of what's happening uh, for her. And so all these crazy changes are happening for Mary. And remember, she's 12 or 13 or 14 years old. So this is not happening uh, to a person who can expect it, anticipate it. I know younger back then was normal to start having kids, but still, 12, 13, 14 years old is a lot. Uh, and then, once she's full term, she has to do a four-day trek down to uh, Bethlehem because of some crazy uh, census that was being called for uh, by Quirinius. And that was a four-day trek uh, on a donkey through rough terrain. This is not, you know, a miserable journey down 99 or, or I-5, you know, to SoCal uh, where we whine about this. This is, this is a really difficult journey. Now, once they get to Bethlehem, like I talked in the disclaimers last week, there's no hospitality. And even though I called baloney on that uh, to Luke, uh, I think we're supposed to play with the story and just hear what that says, that there was, there was no room for this one that was coming into the world. That's a massive allusion to how it's going to go for Jesus in time. <laughs> they didn't have room for him. 
And so what do they get stuck with? They get stuck in the absolute worst condition, which again, we're not supposed to get too carried away with the literalness of this, but to hear the massive message that is being spoken here, that, that this great event that's happening is coming in the worst possible situation so that other people in the worst possible situation might connect the dots and say, God is with us even in the dung heap of a cave barn, which makes a big difference for us in our suck fest that we go through. Uh, there were untimely visitors. I just kind of thought about this because uh, as a pastor, uh, it's not uncommon for me to go visit somebody in the hospital. And I generally uh, make sure that the person actually wants a visitor. Uh, because some people, when they are in the hospital, they're not looking or feeling the best. There's a part of us that wants to be loving people and show our support and just show up because they're going to love being seen. But sometimes they really don't want it and they'll never say it because they're not looking like they want to look. They're really not up for a visitor. And that certainly had to be the case for Mary. She just gave birth, according to Luke's gospel. She just gave birth. She's in a ton of physical pain. She's absolutely worn out. And who comes to visit? but a bunch of smelly shepherds who just came off the hill, right? And they're trying to, you know, put a silver lining on everything and talk about how wonderful things are. And meanwhile, Mary's in agony. It's like, get out, Joseph, get them out of here. This is, I did not want visitors right now. I mean, that's, let's just admit that. Untimely visitors. And then you got King Herod, uh, who was a big jerk, was threatened by the birth of this baby and called for infanticide of every kid two years and younger in Bethlehem. So once they got word on that, uh, they escaped to Egypt, so another long journey with a young kid now. Uh, and once things cooled off, they had to relocate to Nazareth because they were told that Bethlehem still wasn't a safe space for them. So that's how Matthew gets Jesus all the way up to the region of Galilee. Eventually, uh, Mary's going to be widowed. She has a couple more kids. Uh, Jesus had brothers and sisters. Um, but at some point, Joseph died. And that meant that there was sorrow and grief and change uh, for Mary. Another Suckfest season for her. And of course, perhaps the greatest Suckfest of all is having to watch her own son, who had this incredible beginning, uh, be rejected once more in a very final way. To watch him be beaten and tortured and then finally executed in the most humiliating uh, way possible. There to the very end. Suckfest, Suckfest, Suckfest not a Merry Christmas. And one of the things I just want to point out is that Suckfest includes sucky situations and it includes Suckmeisters, which is a, a word I made up just for you this week. Uh, the Suckfests, you know, are si sucky situations. We can all understand that. Um, sometimes they're completely random. We have no say over them. There's nowhere to point fingers, you know. Uh, sometimes we just get sick. COVID right? Uh, COVID was a bug that was going around, and it affected millions of people, and millions of people died, survived it fine, some people. Uh, it, was, it was the death knell, right? Uh, and you just don't know. This is a pathogen that was out there, and some people were taken by it. Some people get cancer, and there's no really good reason. There's nothing to point a finger to. It's just the fact of living with a frail human life. Sometimes it's uh, stuff like economic crisis or losing your job, and you, there's also not one single person uh, to point a finger at. So when the, the Great Recession happened in 2008, 
as much as everybody wants to always point at whoever is inhabiting the White House, it's way more complex than that. You have so many global forces that are coming together, so many characters at play that bring about such things. It's so complex and nuanced. So it's overwhelming, and that's a suck fest. That's sort of this generalized thing that we got to deal with with our lives. Sometimes it is a suckmeister, though. Uh, Big-time suckmeisters like King Herod or Mr. Potter, uh, they're the ones who, even though I still believe in what the Genesis uh, Jewish poem says that you know God created humanity out of dirt and blew breath into us so we're this all of us are this strange combination of flesh and spirit all of us uh, I do believe that some people get so clotted up with that dirt side that there's almost no capacity to be in touch with the spirit that resides within so addicted to power and greed and more and more, so self-centered in that way that to be able to hear the Spirit is, there's like, they're like deaf to it. Um, I think, you think about big players like this. You think Hitler, you think Mussolini, you think Joseph Stalin. Uh, these kinds of levels of players that cause pain and suffering for millions and millions of people. How can they, how can we explain that except to say, They've lost their capacity for hearing the Spirit of God. But sometimes the suckmeisters aren't global figures. Sometimes they're right across the table from you. Sometimes they're sitting on a stage talking to you. <laughs> and actually, if we're honest with ourselves, at one point or another, we've all been the suckmeister in someone's story. It may have only been for a few moments. But maybe for some of us, we've been the suckmeister in someone else's story for a while. Maybe it lasted a week or a month or a year or a longer season. And when they think about the suckiness of their life and their suckfest seasons, it's us. It's us. And I think it's important just to acknowledge that, to keep us humble. That, <laughs> remember, anytime we point the finger at somebody, we've got three fingers pointing back. At ourselves we have the capacity to be suckmeisters so what do we do what do we do with suck fests when we're trying to be positive and happy and have a Merry Christmas and just watch it's a wonderful life and pretend everything's fine when everything's not always fine and some of you I know some of you I know are going through a level of suck fest right now you've experienced death you've experienced hardship People you love are struggling or suffering. Um, I know this is real for us. Well, uh, we get some help and some advice from some pretty smart people. Uh, Viktor Frankl, uh, he said, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. So he's recognizing that we have a moment to take advantage of. And that moment can be as long as we need it to be, where we not react, but we can make our choice to respond. And that's really good advice. Gandhi said, you can't change how people see you or what they say about you. All you can do is change how you respond to it. Because you cannot control other people. They're gonna do what they are gonna do. And the only thing you can control is how you react or better how you respond 
Henry Cloud, who's a well-known uh, guy, wrote the book on boundaries. He said the difference between responding and reacting is choice. When you're reacting, they are in control. When you respond, you are. So learn the difference between those two things. And to give you a helpful chart that you cannot read from where you're sitting, uh, we have a contrast here. So on the left side is reacting uh, statements and on the right side is responding. And so on the, on the left, uh, the reaction sides include being impulsive, uh, reacting out of emotions and fear, being short-sighted, uh, being immediate in our thinking of the situation, and largely being irrational. And I'm sure if you chronicled your own life and thought about times you got into a spat with somebody you cared about, uh, you can know when you've reacted, right? You say things you wish you hadn't. Uh, you're not rational. You're not thinking straight. On the right side, though, is uh, terms that talk about responding. It talks about being intentional with what we're going to do. Uh, responding out of love and respect rather than fear. Uh, seeing the bigger picture and the long-term picture. Um, a delayed response instead of an immediate uh, reaction and exercising self-control uh, when we choose to respond. These are all good reminders of what to do. But I want to tell you that uh, while these are all well and good, you only have so much control over your capacity to respond. You have a lot of agency. Uh, you really do. But be aware that you may not have as much as you think you do. For one, let's talk about brain chemicals. There's a reason why taking a pause when you're in the heat of a problem or in the middle of your suckiness as you need, to, you need to respect your brain chemicals. Because when we are under great stress from sucky situations, be it a heated argument with somebody we care about or somebody we don't care about, uh, or just the general suckiness of things that are happening in our lives, it puts chemicals into our brain that will not allow you to think clearly. Uh, the Gottman Institute, uh, which specializes in data-driven advice for people uh, for married people and having healthy dialogue, especially around conflict, they are big-time advocates of taking a break in the middle of an argument because they know that if you continue on when you're in the heat of the moment, you're going to do stupid things because you're going to be reacting, not responding. And the science is clear on that. Uh, when you have that kind of brain chemical flush, they call it emotional flooding. It's a chemical flooding in your brain. You can't think straight. So don't even try. Take a pause. Set up. If it's, a, if it's your, your spouse, if it's your partner, if it's a coworker, whatever, learn to take a pause and say, we need to take time out here uh, right now to do this. Uh, so uh, that's helpful uh, to do. The other thing in terms of your uh, limitations on your full agency is you all, none of you were just airdropped into your life. You were raised by somebody in a particular culture. And everything you see in your world is, is influenced and affected by your paradigms. Your theological paradigms right now, even if they've shifted over time, they're still framing how you think about how God is going to show up because it just does. Your schema controls everything about you. And in the culture that we live in, everything has formed you to this point in time to help you think in a certain way. So when we think that we have this great control, being mindful that our brain chemicals sometimes work against us, our upbringing sometimes works against us, should keep us humble <laughs> uh, to consider our response when we get to it. Well, let's think about what George did in his response. So first he reacted. The whole story is because he's about to make a terrible reaction to the suckfest of his life. 
He's, he's, his brain is full of chemicals that are out of his control. He's freaking out. He can only see one way out, which is so common for people who are considering taking their lives. This is the only solution to the problem, they tell themselves. If you know anybody who's thinking this way, ask them, are you, are you even considering this? It's one of the most important questions you can ask. You're not going to encourage them by doing this. Ask them, are you considering this? Uh, because I want to know, and I want to be a resource for help for you and let you know there are other options. This is all part of good training uh, that's data-driven on this stuff. Uh, because people can't think straight, and George couldn't think straight so much that he was going to take his life. And then, because he was given this gift of seeing what life would be like in the world without him, that is one massive pause for him to reflect that's what the whole thing's about, is one big stop to think, to breathe, to see differently. And then, by the end, he was able to respond differently. And what was his response? Remember what happened toward the end? Not the very, very end, but before, bef George hadn't seen the movie yet. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life. So he didn't know that there was going to be a big pile of cash that was going to get him out of trouble and, you know, a friend from the rich friend, Sam Wainwright, was going to make sure everything was covered. He had no idea that was coming. No idea whatsoever. When the snow started to fall again, which was a signal to the viewer uh, that the experiment had lifted, that the, the pause in time was gone, um, what happens? Bert the cop comes, meets George on that same bridge. George is calling out to God, I want to live, I want to live, I want to live, because he's recognized through the pause that there was more to live for than the suckiness was letting him think about. Bert the cop pulls out. George thinks that he's out to arrest him. He threatens to hit him again. What the Sam Hill are you yelling about, George? <laughs> right? That's the cop saying back to George. And what, your mouth's bleeding, George. My mouth's bleeding, my mouth's bleeding. And he feels it, and what does he do? He sees that his mouth is bleeding, and what does he do? Does he start to cry? Does he get angry? No. He's, he rejoices. And then he wonders if Zuzu's petals are in his pocket, which they are. He's elated because he had the moment to see differently. Now he's running through the town like an idiot, saying Merry Christmas to everybody at the top of his lungs including banging on the window of Mr. Potter's office and wishing him, you know, the suckmeister of the story, a Merry Christmas. Of course, it doesn't matter to Mr. Potter. Merry Christmas to you two in jail, right? I mean, that's, that's the whole uh, craziness of the story. He runs home, finds out that there's a reporter in his home. There's also the district attorney in his house ready to give him uh, handcuffs with the arrest warrant. Uh, the bank examiner is there as well. He doesn't care. He makes fun of the fact, yeah, probably going to jail, isn't it wonderful? And he's just looking around for Mary and the kids. The kids come out from their sleep, and he runs up the stairs to give Zuzu a hug because he's got a daughter. It's her. She was sick, and now he's back. He's got the life back that he had. The guy can't, you can't keep this George down. Mary runs up the stairs, and they have this dramatic kiss moment, which apparently was very awkward when they actually did it. They, like, put it off to the very end because George was so, or uh, Jimmy Stewart was so uncomfortable with it. But it's this dramatic scene that you, when you're watching it, you're like, oh, this is so good. I mean, this is what you, you're wanting to happen. And all of this is happening before he knows that it's going to be okay. And I think that's where we actually should stop for ourselves. Because the point of the story isn't that 
he gets a big pile of cash. I think George, if he'd have gotten arrested that night, if nobody came through, I think he still would have said, it's been a wonderful life. Because he had pause enough to see it. And he was rejoicing in what was, not what wasn't. Even the worst case scenario was not going to rob him of the beauty of the life that he'd lived. Now, was it great that all the townspeople came? Yeah, that showed the kind of person that he'd lived his life the whole time and people coming to celebrate and help him out and make sure that this guy who'd been so good for them, they were going to return the favor in his time of need. Yeah, that's awesome and wonderful. But I think Clarence would have gotten his wings without that big impromptu offering. And what about Mary? Well, Mary's response started with, here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. And then she breaks into this wonderful uh, Magnificat, this wonderful poem song. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now you've got to remember who's talking here. This is a very poor young woman who was treated like property because legally she was, who had very few civil rights, who was about to go walk face into misery, massive suck fest for an unknown period of time. And yet she is rejoicing. Why? Because all the voices around her said, you're not really worth much, Mary. God obviously doesn't care much about you because you have so little. But now God's self has shown up and showing favor in this incredible thing that God is doing in the world. This is a massive boost for Mary. It's a pause for her to recognize just exactly how grand is the thing that God was up to. His mercy is for those who revere him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. There's that theme again. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. It was again, was a turn. It was a turn in the table on the common sensibilities of the day that assumed that if you were blessed financially, then surely it was from the hand of God, which meant the opposite must be true too. And now the great reversal is happening that God doesn't give a rip about how much money you have or your titles or your power. God simply and purely loves you as a human being. And that's radical. Finally, she says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. She took pause. We don't know how long it lasted. We don't know how long this moment was. Was this a, a magic moment in time that we'll never know about just to play along with Luke's story and enjoy it a little bit? Did she get one of these moments that in one second it was snowing, then it wasn't, then it was again, and she lived you know, a day or two or a week or however long? Is that how long the pause was? We don't know. But something happened between this sucks and Magnificat. And the point is that whatever she did to get to that place, she overcame her fears and overcame the horrors that she was going to face because of what was going to happen to her. It's a great twist. And I want to tell you that Jesus lived with suckfests and suckmeisters too. His was not a wonderful life and... <laughs> His was not a wonderful life by many accounts. He was martyred, right, executed, as were most of his disciples. Uh, he was scorned. He was challenged by his home church, by the rabbis. 
Sure, he had some wonderful experiences, but he also faced again and again people turning on him, people walking away, people that he'd done, served, just served uh, lunch for 5,000. And then he says, oh, by the way, if you want to be my follower, pick up your cross and follow me. In other words, let's get some skin in the game because this thing actually means something and it's going to require something of you. And all of a sudden, his megachurch operated. <laughs> and he's back down to a small crowd because it's a hard thing to hear. Yes, to. Jesus knew what it was like to live through the suck fest. One of his own turned on him. Another of his own, his, his chief guy, denied even knowing him three times. He was beaten beyond recognition and then humiliated on a cross. Jesus knows a thing or two about Suckfest, so much so that he said, why, have, why, oh God, have you forsaken me? As he's about to draw his last breath. This is human agony. But Jesus, what Matthew said was at his birth, he would be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Jesus regularly made sure he took pauses so that he could respond to what was happening in his life. He would break away from public ministry and go alone to a solitary place. He would even leave his inner circle of friends and go away to a place to be alone so that he could settle down, he could let the brain chemicals calm down, see things from a different perspective, and remind himself again what his message was, who he was, that God was with him, in him, with him, all through. And I want to say to you that this is true uh, for you. And my question for you is how will you open yourself up uh, to God's presence that is with you and for you? And some of us would say, well, when am I going to get my Clarence? When am I going to get my Gabriel? Because if I only had that, then okay, I'll believe you. But the reality is you've already had something better every day of your life, which is one of the very things that Jesus came to communicate. One of the massive shifts that took place with Jesus and his teaching was that the Spirit of God was not just for one or two people with a prophet title after their name or rabbi before their name. It was for everyone. The Spirit of God is anointing everyone if you'll accept it. If you'll open to it, it's already there. But as we've stressed again and again here at Crosswalk, and the reason why we do meditation here is if we don't slow down enough to be still and quiet in some way, we probably won't hear it. Christmas music blaring all the time, <laughs> trying to get us into the zone, which I'm cool with that. Next week's going to be awesome. Uh, but maybe, maybe, maybe the greatest gift you can give yourself is to make sure that you are instilling that awe, that centering, so that you can hear the still, small voice of God trying to break through your dirt-filled ears. Because we all struggle with it. It's hard to do. I struggle with it. Uh, I've got my own stuff uh, that I've dealt with through my life, own stressors times I've blown it when I've reacted instead of responded. I will tell you one, one time that was particularly stressful, a couple times really, that were uh, extremely stressful. Uh, and both of these times are very different circumstances, but I came to a realization that there was absolutely nothing I could do. Uh, that I was in the middle of a suck fest. Uh, in one case, there was an absolute definite suckmeister that I couldn't do a thing about. And I was just stuck. And it was like, 
there is no way around this. There's no way over it. There's no way under it. The only way is through. And at first, I went into this thing. Uh, and by the way, I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm hoping to give you hope that this, can, this is a real possibility for us. But I got to this point where I was just so aware of how sucky the situation is and how out of control I was to do anything about it. I just had to suffer through it and wait. That, in a weird way, the stress of the situation somehow, I think by the gift of God, turned to laughter. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I'm like, can't do anything about it. This is nuts. So here we go. All right, God, you got to hold on, man, because I got nothing else. And it was just this release of realizing in the heat of the moment I could do nothing. And once I realized I could do nothing, it's like I was empowered to get through it. It's like all of the suckiness just melted away because I was powerless against it, and the only thing I had left was the presence of God in my life. It hasn't always gone that way. I've had plenty of reactionary times, but I know that this is possible. I know it happened for Jesus on many occasions. I know it happened for the Apostle Paul. I know it happened for the disciples. They're thrown in jail, a miserable dungeon, like terrible dungeon. And you know what they're known for? Singing Christmas carols. Well, I don't know about the Christmas part, but they're singing songs of praise to God. Why? Because they recognized in the moment where life really resided, what was the most important thing. And in centering on that, they found themselves strong, empowered, and even joyful, which is not the same as happy. But they knew their joy was going to hang on. Emmanuel means God is with us, always with us. No matter what happens to us, God is with us. Julian of Norwich, uh, who literally walled herself into a uh, cathedral uh, in Europe, uh, she had a vision, you know. She was a mystic centuries ago and had incredible things to say. And one of the powerful things that she said after one of these unitive experiences of the presence of God at work in the world that helped her see that things are connected and God is very powerful and working in the world to weave all things together for good, like Paul says, she had the audacity to say, all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. And because of that truth, she moved forward and lived in joy. So can we. Let's pray together. So God, as we uh, bring this time to a close, first we just want to acknowledge and be honest about the Suckfests. Uh, the George in the story, It's a Wonderful Life, um, was very, very vocal about how he was really feeling. He was not in denial, and we should take note. It is okay for us to say, this sucks. It is okay for us to get it out on the table and say, we are struggling with this. It is okay for us, like George, to cry out to you and say, I just don't know if we can go on. I don't know, I don't know if I can take anymore. It is okay to be honest about how we're doing. You welcome it and want it. It is a part of the process of healing. 
So God, help us. Help us to be honest about our emotional selves. Because the only one we're fooling is ourselves when we don't. But after we've gotten this out, thrown it up on the table, God, help us in taking pause, as hard as it might be, as long as it might take. Help us to find a place where we can breathe deep, reconnect with who you are. If that's in a silent prayer space, if that's walking through the woods, if it's going to the beach, if it's going to play in the snow, if it's listening to Christmas, whatever, whatever it is, Help us, empower us to take the nudge, to take pause so that we can breathe again, that we can get the dirt out of our ears, so we can hear your voice tell us again, I'm with you, I love you, I'm with you. So that we might get to the place and join Julian of Norwich in saying, all shall be well. All shall be well. All manner of thing shall be well. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for coming today. I hope you're comforted and helped in some way. Uh, those of you who are caroling, I think we're eating in my office across the hall. And after we're uh, full, we'll head on out. Thanks for coming. See you next week. Thank you.